0: Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, May 2, 2019, we feature articles on TAVR in low-risk patients, brain deposition of tau in living former NFL players, and BCMA-directed CAR T-cells in myeloma, Review articles on hypoparathyroidism and on stem cell research and clinical application, a clinical problem-solving describing repetition, and perspective articles on building on the ACA to achieve universal coverage, on turning drug rebates into discounts in Medicare Part D, and on counting your blessings. Transcatheter Aortic Valve Replacement with a Balloon-Expandable Valve in Low-Risk Patients by Michael Mack from Baylor Scott & White Health, Plano, Texas. Among patients with aortic stenosis who are at intermediate or high risk for death with surgery, major outcomes are similar with transcatheter aortic valve replacement, TAVR, and surgical aortic valve replacement, there is insufficient evidence regarding the comparison of the two procedures in patients who are at low risk. In this study, in 71 centers, 1,000 patients with severe aortic stenosis and low surgical risk were randomly assigned to undergo either TAVR with transfemoral placement of a balloon expandable valve or surgery. The Kaplan-Meier estimate of the rate of the primary composite endpoint of death Stroke or rehospitalization at one year was significantly lower in the TAVR group than in the surgery group, 8.5% versus 15.1%. At 30 days, TAVR resulted in a lower rate of stroke than surgery and in lower rates of death or stroke and new onset atrial fibrillation. TAVR also resulted in a shorter index hospitalization than surgery and in a lower risk of a poor treatment outcome, death or a low Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire score at 30 days. There were no significant between-group differences in major vascular complications, new permanent pacemaker insertions, or moderate or severe paravalvular regurgitation. Among patients with severe aortic stenosis who were at low surgical risk, the rate of the composite of death, stroke or rehospitalization at 1 year was significantly lower with TAVR than with surgery. Transcatheter aortic valve replacement with a self-expanding valve in low-risk patients. By Jeffrey Popma from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Boston. In this randomized non-inferiority trial, transcatheter aortic valve replacement, TAVR, with a self-expanding supraannular bioprosthesis, was compared with surgical aortic valve replacement in 1,403 patients who had severe aortic stenosis and were at low surgical risk. Data were analyzed when 850 patients had reached 12-month follow-up. The 24-month estimated incidence of the primary endpoint of death or disabling stroke at 24 months was 5.3% in the TAVR group and 6.7% in the surgery group. At 30 days, patients who had undergone TAVR, as compared with surgery, had a lower incidence of disabling stroke (0.5% versus 1.7%), bleeding complications. versus 7.5%, acute kidney injury, 0.9% versus 2.8%, and atrial fibrillation, 7.7% versus 35.4%, and a higher incidence of moderate or severe aortic regurgitation, 3.5% versus 0.5%, and pacemaker implantation, 17.4% versus 6.1%. At twelve months, patients in the TAVR group had lower aortic valve gradients than those in the surgery group, eight point six millimeters mercury versus eleven point two millimeters mercury, and larger effective orifice areas, two point three centimeters squared versus two centimeters squared in patients with severe aortic stenosis who were at low surgical risk. TAVR, with a self-expanding supraannular bioprosthesis, was non-inferior to surgery with respect to the composite endpoint of death or disabling stroke at 24 months. Catherine Otto from the University of Washington School of Medicine, Seattle, writes in an editorial that valve replacement is the only effective treatment for adults with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis. The ideal prosthetic valve would be associated with minimal risk and discomfort at implantation, would have hemodynamics similar to those of a normal valve, would not require anticoagulation, and would be durable for the patient's lifetime. We are moving closer to this goal, as evidenced by sequential randomized clinical trials of TAVR, initially in patients at prohibitive or high estimated risk for death with surgical aortic valve replacement, then in patients at intermediate risk, and now in patients at low risk. These two trials provide strong evidence that TAVR is non-inferior and even superior to surgery over one-year and two-year time frames. In addition, TAVR resulted in fewer strokes, less bleeding, and less atrial fibrillation than surgery, as well as a shorter hospital stay and faster recovery. Thus, it is time for a paradigm shift in how we approach decisions about valve type in patients with aortic stenosis. Estimated surgical risk no longer dictates the choice between surgery and TAVR. Instead, the primary considerations are life expectancy and valve durability, both of which are related to the patient's age. In most patients older than 70 years of age, the use of a bioprosthetic valve is appropriate. In this group of patients, TAVR is likely to become the preferred option over surgery. Even so, caution is needed, because robust data regarding the durability of the transcatheter bioprosthetic valve beyond five years are not yet available. Tau-positron emission tomography in former National Football League players by Robert Stern from Boston University School of Medicine. Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy, CTE is a neurodegenerative disease that has been associated with a history of repetitive head impacts. The neuropathological diagnosis is based on a specific pattern of tau deposition with minimal amyloid beta deposition that differs from other disorders, including Alzheimer's disease. These investigators used flortausapir PET and Florbetapir PET to measure deposition of tau and amyloid beta, respectively, in the brains of 26 former National Football League players with cognitive and neuropsychiatric symptoms, and in 31 asymptomatic men with no history of traumatic brain injury. The mean Florbetapir standardized uptake value ratio was higher among former players than among controls in three regions of the brain bilateral superior frontal, 1.09 versus 0.98, bilateral medial temporal, 1.23 versus 1.12, and left parietal, 1.12 versus 1.01. There was no association between tau deposition and scores on cognitive and neuropsychiatric tests. Only one former player had levels of amyloid beta deposition similar to those in persons with Alzheimer's disease. A group of living former NFL players with cognitive and neuropsychiatric symptoms had higher tau levels measured by PET than controls in brain regions that are affected by CTE and did not have elevated amyloid beta levels. Further studies are needed to determine whether elevated CTE-associated tau can be detected in individual persons. In an editorial, Alan Roper writes that the 26 former NFL players in the current study reported cognitive and behavioral changes, and 12 to 81 percent scored in the impaired range on neuropsychological tests. However, no associations could be established between these scores and tau deposition, possibly because the study was small or because many of the clinical features that are attributed to CTE implicate deep brain structures, which are not well revealed with PET scans. For these reasons, limited suppositions should be made on the basis of the presence or absence of neuropsychological abnormalities in athletes who are at risk for CTE. As with Alzheimer's disease, the CTE field is in a phase of fumbling with circumstantial evidence for a connection between tau deposition and a clinical syndrome. The authors of the current study emphasize that their findings are derived from computational models involving a group of former NFL players compared with a group of controls, and these techniques cannot yet be used to diagnose CTE in an individual player. This report certainly does strengthen the case that Tau is the offender early in CTE, but other links remain to be clarified. The techniques for studying living biology, such as this use of tau ligand PET, are making a difference. Anti-BCMA CAR T-cell therapy BB2121 in relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma by Nupur Rajay from the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center, Boston. Preclinical studies suggest that BB2121, a chimeric antigen receptor, CAR T-cell therapy, that targets B-cell maturation antigen, BCMA, has potential for the treatment of multiple myeloma. In this Phase one study involving patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma, BB-2121 was administered as a single infusion in a dose escalation phase and in an expansion phase. The primary endpoint was safety. Results for the first 33 consecutive patients who received a BB-2121 infusion are reported. Hematologic toxic effects were the most common events of grade 3 or higher, including neutropenia in 85% of the patients, leukopenia in 58%, anemia in 45%, and thrombocytopenia in 45%. 76% of patients had cytokine release syndrome, which was of grade 1 or 2 in 70%, and grade 3 in 6%. Neurologic toxic effects occurred in 42% of patients and were of grade 1 or 2 in 39%. One patient had a reversible grade 4 neurologic toxic effect. 85% of the patients had a clinical response lasting a median of 10.9 months without any ongoing myeloma therapy. Complete responses were observed across all doses. Response appeared to be independent of tumor BCMA expression. The median progression-free survival was 11.8 months, with 40% of the patients free of progression at 12 months. Non-hematologic toxic effects were primarily of grade 2 or lower. Hypoparathyroidism, a clinical practice article by Rachel Gaffney from the National Institutes of Health, Bethesda, Maryland. Hypoparathyroidism is a rare disorder of parathyroid hormone deficiency, with an estimated prevalence of 23 to 37 cases per 100,000 person-years. It most commonly occurs as a complication of anterior neck surgery, in approximately 78% of cases, and is therefore seen more frequently in older adult women, who are more likely than others in the general population, to undergo thyroid surgery. However, there is an expanding list of genetic and non-surgical acquired causes, including autoimmune causes. Hypoparathyroidism results in hypocalcemia. Symptoms, when present, range from paresthesias and muscle cramps to seizures and laryngospasm. It is often associated with basal ganglia calcification, cataracts, and neuropsychiatric symptoms. The goal of treatment is to maintain the blood calcium level near the low end of the normal range while preventing symptoms of hypocalcemia. This is usually achieved with oral calcium and active vitamin D, calcitriol or alpha-calcidol supplementation, but may involve treatment with subcutaneous parathyroid hormone therapy. Treatment is commonly associated with hypercalciuria, nephrocalcinosis, nephrolithiasis, and renal insufficiency, thus emphasizing the need for careful monitoring and improved therapies. Listen to the full text of this article at NEJM.org. Stem Cells in the Treatment of Disease, a review article by Helen Blau from Stanford University School of Medicine, California. The derivation of induced pluripotent stem cells has revolutionized stem cell research. These cells, like embryonic stem cells, can propagate in unlimited fashion and differentiate into essentially any specialized cell type. Unlike embryonic stem cells, pluripotent stem cells are generated from somatic cells, obviating ethical debates and providing patient-derived models of disease for studies of pathogenesis and drug screening and a source of cells for experimental transplantation therapies. Typically, induced pluripotent stem cells are generated by the transient overexpression of four transcription factors in readily accessible, fully differentiated cells, such as those of blood, skin, or urine. The resulting cells demonstrate the plasticity of cell fate, re-express telomerase, and have restored telomere lengths and a reset epigenetic landscape traits associated with immortalized cell lines. Progress in enlisting the regenerative potential of stem cells in adult tissues has thus far surmounted that of pluripotent stem cells. The relatively restricted potency of these cells may prove to be advantageous relative to embryonic and pluripotent stem cells for cell therapy in certain contexts. This review describes advances in and challenges for the development of stem cell-based therapies focusing on the skin, heart, eye, skeletal muscle, neural tissue, pancreas, and blood. Repetition, a clinical problem-solving article by Garth Strobin from the University of Michigan Medical School, Ann Arbor. A 60-year-old man presented to an emergency department with a two-day history of exertional dyspnea and a productive cough. In the previous month, he had progressive dysphagia to both solids and liquids and a weight loss of 4.5 kilograms. Examination revealed bitemporal wasting, frequent coughing and clearing of secretions, and a hoarse hypophonic voice with hypernasal resonance. Neurologic examination revealed subtle weakness of the muscles on both sides of the face, minimal palatal elevation, and absence of triceps, patellar, and Achilles reflexes on both sides. Dysphagia, dysphonia, and facial weakness together indicate bulbar weakness, which can result from disorders affecting cranial motor neurons, the neuromuscular junction, or muscles. However, the dyspnea and hypoxemia seemed more likely to be related to pneumonitis than to neuromuscular respiratory failure. CT of the patient's thorax and abdomen revealed bibasilar infiltrates and ground glass opacities. The patient was treated for pneumonia. While at tertiary care a bedside laryngoscopic swallow study revealed pooling of secretions and severe oropharyngeal weakness. See the video at NEJM.org. Electromyography revealed diffuse spontaneous activity with myotonic discharges of the right triceps, biceps, and tibialis anterior. In patients with unexplained oropharyngeal dysphagia, EMG assessment for neuromuscular pathologic conditions should be considered. Myotonic dystrophy is a group of nucleotide repeat expansion diseases that are characterized by hyperexcitable muscle with impaired relaxation, myotonia. Building on the ACA to Achieve Universal Coverage, a perspective article by Matthew Fiedler from the Brookings Institution, Washington, D.C. Since the ACA's passage, the percentage of U.S. residents without coverage has fallen by almost half, from 16 percent to approximately 9 percent. Yet more needs to be done if we are to achieve universal coverage. Researchers at the Urban Institute studied which groups remained uninsured in 2017. In their view, these estimates make clear that achieving universal coverage within the framework created by the ACA requires four basic steps. Implementing the ACA's Medicaid expansion in all states increasing and expanding financial assistance to people who purchase coverage through the health insurance marketplace to make coverage more attractive, ensuring that people actually enroll in the affordable coverage for which they are eligible, and addressing coverage for undocumented immigrants. Policymakers can tackle each of these steps and thereby finish the job of ensuring universal coverage by building on the ACA. For people who are concerned about the fiscal cost, political feasibility, or disruption associated with a single-payer approach to providing universal coverage, this framework may be viewed as an alternative, or it can be seen as a stepping stone to such a system. The approach described here provides a blueprint for achieving the widely shared goal of universal coverage at a manageable fiscal cost and with minimal disruption for the hundreds of millions of Americans who are already insured. A New Safe Harbor, Turning Drug Rebates into Discounts in Medicare Part D A Perspective article by Walid Galad from the University of Pittsburgh The Department of Health and Human Services proposed a rule in January that would fundamentally change the role of medication rebates in Medicare Part D, and with it, drug pricing in general. The rule requires drug manufacturers to pass discounts directly to Medicare patients at the point of sale, rather than through the current opaque rebate system that doesn't directly lower drug prices and may actually raise them. Normally, rebates in Medicare, along with bribes and kickbacks, would be prohibited by the anti-kickback statute, which bans payments that induce provision of services paid for by the federal government. Part D rebates, however, are specifically allowed by a safe harbor clause exempting them from the statute. These rebates have increased over time, from 11% of gross costs in 2010 to a projected 27% in 2020, with an estimated value of $43.4 billion. In January, HHS moved to eliminate the safe harbor protection. In its place, HHS proposed a new safe harbor that protects prescription drug discounts only when they're shared directly with patients at the pharmacy counter. However, actuaries estimate that two-thirds of beneficiaries would pay more overall without insurer rebates, and premiums would increase by $3 to $5 per month. A minority of patients purchasing expensive drugs that carry large rebates would see savings, although their drugs would still be costly. For the pharmaceutical industry, this plan is a clear win. Count Your Blessings, a perspective article by Brendan Riley from Dartmouth College, Hanover, New Hampshire. Avery started chemo a year ago today. Like the snapdragons on the green, her hair is sprouting too. Bald as a cue ball a month ago, she's blonde again, her pate blooming with golden peach fuzz under a floppy pink hat. She's a beautiful kid and the spitting image of her mother when Caitlin was for herself. The resemblance only doubles the horror of it all. Whenever Dr. Riley sees Avery, it's like his wife Caitlin has leukemia too, which of course she does. The isolation has been the hardest part. No preschool or playdates. But even the guys at the UPS store pitch in. They keep Avery's mail in a special place, knowing she'll come in daily, Purell in hand. She's a baby in a bubble, protected and cheered by a whole community that cares. On one visit to the UPS store, Jim was behind the counter. Dr. Riley had met him several times before, a dapper guy with a kindly way with small fry. But he wasn't smiling that time. The way he stared at Avery stopped Dr. Riley in his tracks. So intent, so hungry was Jim's focus on her. Dr. Riley got Avery out of there. When he told Caitlin, she showed a newspaper clipping dated a few weeks ago, which he had saved because, count your blessings, you know. A military veteran in the desert southwest, recently returned from deployment overseas, had killed his wife and two young children before killing himself. The murder victims were Jim's only daughter and grandchildren. The little girl was four. Her name was Ava. Thanks to Sidney Farber and others like him, four-year-old Avery has good odds of surviving her leukemia. But more one- to four-year-olds in the United States are murdered every year than die from cancer. And no Sidney Farber is working day and night to save those kids. Our Images in Clinical Medicine features a nine-year-old boy who presented to the Pediatric Otolaryngology Clinic with a sensation of the presence of a foreign body in his right ear. He also reported that he had heard buzzing noises in his right ear three days earlier. He lived in Connecticut and had been playing outdoors at school. He had no pain, tinnitus, or loss of hearing. On physical examination, a tick was seen on the right tympanic membrane with surrounding inflammation. Removal of the tick with guidance from an operative microscope was attempted in the office, but the tick could not be removed. The patient was subsequently transferred to the operating room for removal of the tick while he was under general anesthesia. The tick was again seen attached to the tympanic membrane. The tick's capitulum was buried beneath the epidermal layer of the tympanic membrane. The underlying fibrous layer of the membrane remained intact. The tick was removed with a day hook, with guidance from an operative microscope. Subsequent pathological testing identified the tick as dermocenter variabilis. After extraction of the tick, the patient had no signs or symptoms suggestive of systemic illness, and he was treated with ciprofloxacin eardrops for an abrasion of the tympanic membrane. One month later, the patient was doing well. A 37-year-old man presented to the endocrinology clinic with a four-year history of excessive sweating, headaches, and joint pain. His wife had also noticed increasing skin folds on his scalp. Physical examination showed thickening of the skin on his scalp with ridges and furrows. He had enlarged feet and hands and a protruding lower jaw. Findings from laboratory evaluation were notable for an insulin-like growth factor 1 level of 907 micrograms per liter and a random measurement of the growth hormone level of 7.3 micrograms per liter. A 75-gram oral glucose load did not suppress the growth hormone level and confirmed a diagnosis of acromegaly. MRI of the head revealed a pituitary adenoma measuring 27 mm by 22 mm by 25 mm. The thickening and furrowing of skin on the scalp, called cutis verticus gyrata, can occur as an isolated finding or may be related to a number of conditions, such as acromegaly, as in this case. The patient underwent transphenoidal resection of the pituitary adenoma. He had residual tumor and was treated with a somatostatin analog and a growth hormone receptor antagonist. He received injections of soft tissue fillers in an attempt to create a smoother appearance of the scalp, but the injections had only partial effect. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our audio summaries. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at NEJM.org. Thank you for listening.